This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. episode of our podcast dedicated to uncovering all the important news and views on the biggest public health crisis in living memory, we hear from Dr. Simone Donati, who is among a team of scientists in Italy. He tells us about what medical experts have discovered on how the coronavirus can go undetected in normal COVID-19 tests by entering the human body through the eyes. We take an in-depth look at the latest developments on vaccine rollout in South Africa with an update on the government deals to secure jabs. You will also hear how South Africa's largest pharmaceuticals company, JSE-listed Aspen Pharmacare, has ramped up efforts to start rolling out J&J COVID-19 vaccines to South Africa and the rest of Africa within weeks. Later in the show, we share an update from Discovery Vitality about novel measures to improve mental health as the pandemic takes its toll on our emotional well-being. First, the main COVID-19 news-making world headlines. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. The number of deaths worldwide from COVID-19 is heading towards 3 million people as governments report nearly 130 million cases of the disease. That's according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center, which lists the US as the country hardest hit by the pandemic with more than 30 million cases and more than 550,000 deaths. Brazil has the world's second highest death toll at about 322,000, while Mexico has the third highest death rate at over 200,000. South Africa is number 15 on the list of countries with high death rates, with just under 53,000 deaths reported by the government. The South African government has bowed to pressure from religious groups and increased the number of those allowed to attend public gatherings, This comes as fears grow of an impending resurgence in coronavirus infections. As many as 250 people can now attend indoor activities and 500 people can join outdoor activities, President Sul Ramaphosa said in an address to the nation on Tuesday night. The raised limit will be reviewed in 15 days, allowing festivals such as Easter and Passover to come and go under eased restrictions. The decision came after days of debate about how South Africa should address an upcoming holiday period that sees millions of people travel to see family and friends and attend religious ceremonies. While active COVID-19 case numbers have dropped dramatically since January, the country lags behind emerging market peers in vaccinations, with only 240,000 health workers inoculated to date. As Bloomberg reports, President Ramaphosa did turn to one familiar weapon against the coronavirus, a ban on alcohol sales. But even that was limited to the four-day holiday weekend starting on Friday, and it only applies to off-site sales. Restaurants, bars and similar establishments may still serve thirsty guests. In contrast, South Africa has previously imposed three total bans over the past year, lasting a combined three and a half months. President Ramaphosa says that despite some delays procuring vaccine supplies, the country has secured enough doses for two-thirds of the population of about 60 million people. Take a listen. More than 250,000 health workers have to date received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine as part of the Sisonke trial. We have secured 
11 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which we know to be effective against the dominant variants in our country. We've secured a further 20 million doses and are finalizing this agreement with Johnson & Johnson. So you could say it's in the bag. We are also finalizing an agreement for 20 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine, which requires two doses. This supply of vaccines will provide us with enough doses to vaccinate 41 million South Africans or people. We will make further announcements once these negotiations have been concluded in relation to just finalizing and dotting every I and crossing every T of the agreements. We are also in various stages of negotiations with the manufacturers of other vaccines such as Sinovac, Sinopharm, and Sputnik V. Some of these manufacturers are in the final stages of the approval process for use of their vaccines in South Africa. In addition to vaccine doses, we will receive directly through our agreements with manufacturers. We will also receive an allocation of vaccine doses through the African Union initiative that we established when we held the chairship of the African Union. Although there have been delays in securing vaccine supplies, we are still confident in achieving our vaccination targets. The demand for vaccines around the world has really become extremely competitive, but we are doing our very best to secure enough supply for the people of South Africa and the African continent. We have had to adapt to the changing nature of the virus and to emerging evidence about the effectiveness of different vaccines. We will ensure that we have sufficient doses of effective vaccines to reach population immunity in the shortest possible time. Phase two is scheduled to start in the middle of May. We believe that sufficient volumes from manufacturers will be arriving in the quantities as agreed in terms of our agreements with them. Under phase two, we hope to vaccinate more of our people over a six-month period. In line with international best practice, we will be prioritizing those at the highest risk of hospitalization and death, such as people over 60 and people living with comorbidities. The American Institute for Economic Research says Twitter has crossed a new line by censoring Harvard Professor Martin Kulldorff, a co-creator of the Great Barrington Declaration. Professor Kulldorff is one of the most cited epidemiologists and infectious disease experts in the world, with his latest count of citations numbering more than 25,000. His tweet on how not everyone needs a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 was not taken down, but he had a warning slapped on it and users have been prevented from liking or retweeting his post. 
Dr. Kuldorf serves on the COVID-19 vaccine safety subgroup that the CDC, NIH and FDA in America rely upon for technical expertise on this very subject. The Institute comments that, Here we have some geeks at Twitter curating science in areas totally outside the specialization of web nodes in a way that skews public understanding of the scientific debate. The Institute says that Dr. Kuldorf is not an anti-vaxxer, but instead has a nuanced position in light of his professional understanding of the demographics of risk of this virus. The European Union's drug regulator says a link between AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine and a rare type of blood clot is possible, identifying at least 62 cases of the condition while insisting the shot's benefits still outweigh its risks. The comments further cloud the picture about the vaccine after Germany restricted it to older people this week amid growing concerns about side effects. Bloomberg reports that this could slow Europe's already lagging immunisation programme as virus cases surge anew. The European Medicines Agency says its safety committee will probably issue an updated recommendation next week. The European Medicines Agency will change its recommendations to patients and healthcare officials, Executive Director Emma Cook says. At the moment, at this stage of our investigations, a link is possible and we cannot say any more than that at this point, Cook said in a press conference. AstraZeneca's vaccine developed with the University of Oxford is under mounting scrutiny and has faced dwindling support in Europe. But countries are counting on the shot to help them exit the pandemic and millions of doses have been administered across the region. Sam Fazeli, an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, notes that the UK needs to be on high alert as it starts using the vaccine in younger people. Concerns surrounding the Astra shot have focused on an unusual type of blood clot known as cerebral venous sinus thrombosis. It's associated with a low number of blood platelets and occurs most commonly in women between the ages of 30 and 45, a group that in the EU has been disproportionately vaccinated with Astra's shot. In individuals under the age of 60, health authorities are seeing more cases of the rare clots in people who recently got the Astra vaccine than would be normally expected. Austria's National Vaccination Panel has recommended the unrestricted use of AstraZeneca's vaccine for the time being, But, says Bloomberg, the panel will discuss the recommendation again after the European Medicines Agency has reassessed data on any blood clotting issues linked to the vaccine next week. Sweden's public health authority has also decided to halt inoculations using AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine, while the European Medicines Agency reviews possible side effects from the jab. Russia has registered the world's first vaccine against COVID-19 for animals, the country's agriculture safety watchdog Russell Kosnazdor said on Wednesday. Russia already has three coronavirus vaccines for humans, the most well-known of which is the Sputnik V, named after Sputnik, the world's first satellite launched by the Soviet Union. The country says the development of its shot will help prevent mutations in animals, and it cites Denmark's decision to cull 15 million mink last year, after some were found to be carrying a mutated virus variant. It added that animal breeding facilities and private companies from countries including Greece, Poland, Austria, the United States, Canada and Singapore have expressed interest in buying Carnivac cough. Coronavirus may cause deafness. This is according to scientists who have reported a strong association between the virus and subsequent trouble with both hearing and balance. The Telegraph reports that the coronavirus could cause hearing loss and other auditory problems. A review of 56 studies shows that the prevalence of hearing loss is 8%. Although a causal link has not yet been proved, it is already known that other serious viruses can damage people's hearing. 
The latest findings come from a year-long UK study into the auditory effects of patients who were hospitalised with COVID-19. Last October, the journal The BMJ documented the first reported case of sudden permanent hearing loss due to the new virus. It has warned doctors to be alert to the potential side effect, as permanent damage can sometimes be prevented with a course of steroids. Professor Kevin Munro, who led the study at the University of Manchester, is quoted as saying that there is an urgent need for a carefully conducted clinical and diagnostic study to understand the long-term effects of COVID-19 on the auditory system. French President Emmanuel Macron has announced a nationwide four-week lockdown, shutting down schools and business. He says we did everything we could to make these decisions as late as possible until they became strictly necessary, which is now, Macron warned in an address to the nation on Wednesday. He said the virus is more contagious and deadlier. He has implored people to make an extra effort as the lockdown begins to come into force on Saturday. Restrictions will be flexible this weekend during the Easter holidays to allow people to relocate. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. Coming up, Stephen Saad, CEO of Aspen Pharmacare, tells us about how the only manufacturer of J&J vaccines in the Southern Hemisphere is ramping up production to speed up vaccine rollout across South Africa. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. South Africa is going to catch up on COVID-19 vaccination rollout fast, with single-shot J&J doses coming out of a new Eastern Cape vaccination manufacturing plant from next month. That's the promise from Stephen Saad, CEO of South Africa's biggest pharmaceutical manufacturer, Aspen Pharmacare. The JSE-listed multinational invested 3 billion rand into a facility before the pandemic. Saad spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, about how the pressure was on after the South African government rejected AstraZeneca vaccines earlier this year amid confusion over whether the vaccine was effective and safe. The Aspen Pharmacare CEO describes the J&J COVID-19 vaccine delivery as a watershed moment for the company and says it will reduce South Africa's dependence on other countries. Take a listen. So the, the way it works is you manufacture and then you have to wait probably about four weeks, one, to do tests on them, and two, to confirm sterility that it's still sterile. You can do it concurrently. So anything you saw coming off the line on TV yesterday that was going to South Africa, you've got about four weeks, three, four weeks till that comes out here. And how are those vaccines going to be rolled out? Are those going through the government or through private healthcare providers? You know, I'd like to think that our our response begins and ends at our factory gate, but we do know a little bit more. Um, it's going to go through both. Um, so it will be available through both. No different to anywhere else in the rest of the world, though. You're not going to be a, a healthy 18-year-old and get it ahead of a, a granny of 80 who might not have the same access as you. So whether you're in the public or private sector, which is exactly the same as it's being rolled out everywhere else. In the and then the rest of the population, and then you clear your hospitals, you People stop being scared of the disease. They, they've got a right to be scared. It's killing people. Now you stop killing people. You stop your hospitals are empty. So it's how quickly we roll out that first phase, in my opinion, that stops us being scared of this virus. We might have started a little bit behind, but because the others are using two doses and we are using one, we can catch up very quickly. <laughs> so, And we have a vaccine that has proven effective against the variant that we've seen in South Africa. There's a scale-up period, April, May, June, 
and then I think from there it's it's a it's a really quick process. I mean, we've got fantastic capacities. I think we should worry less about procurement of vaccines now, and worry more about how we roll out, you know, a, a, a big volumes of vaccines in the not too distant future. And what about the ongoing discussion about the virus mutating? Generally, what you have are variants which is what you've seen now, the variants. And you have the same thing in the flu. So you have the same registration, not a whole registration process. You just submit the new variant, that the adjustments you made for, for the new variants. And so I see that as being something that the pharma companies will manage as we go ahead. I think that we're going to get new variants from here, Jackie. Many is an absolute given. I think you're seeing it already. The one positive is our variant in South Africa seems to be if you can manage that variant, you can manage the others. We are the only producer in the Southern Hemisphere, but certainly Africa is very supportive of aspirin and, and we'd like nothing better than for the majority of our supply to go to Africa and COVAX and South Africa. We know what it's like to be to not be first in the queues. Give us some insights into what happens in your world, liaising with governments and <laughs> other pharmaceutical companies and deciding whether it's aspirin or J&J. There's a perception that the pharmaceutical industry is quite ruthless and cutthroat. And I mean, that's a sad perception because uh, suddenly when the world needs vaccines, the pharmaceutical industry is is all you've got. So it's a, it's a bit sad if that is the perception that it's ruthless and all that. I think all business is tough. It becomes extremely tough when lives are at stake. So you can't just sit there and think, oh, I've got this person to sell to at 10 and this one at 15 and you'd be quite within your rights to to do that if you're selling your motor car or your house. So pharmaceutical's got a, a broader overlay and a bigger overlay of responsibility because you've got so many lives at stake. You can find the full podcast interview with Stephen Saad, CEO of Aspen Pharmacare on BizNews Radio, which is available on all the major podcast channels, including Spotify. How accurate are COVID-19 tests? An Italian study suggests that the number of false negatives is very high and that testing tears could be a better way of diagnosing COVID-19. The study also points to the possibility that the transmission of the coronavirus is helped by the virus hitching a ride on tiny particles in the air, like pollution, pollen and dust. Dr. Simone Donati, one of the researchers, spoke to me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, about the study in Lombardy, the epicenter of the pandemic when it first erupted in Europe. Professor Simone Donati, a professor of ophthalmology with the University of Insubria. Professor Donati has just done some very important research on SARS-CoV-2, looking at the ocular surfaces in a cohort of patients with COVID-19 from the Lombardy region in Italy, which was one of the regions which were hit really hard early on in the pandemic. Professor Donati, what made you head for this type of research so early on in the pandemic? Well, we decided to perform this type of research because we know that the, this infection could be uh, very important, not only for the public, for people, for the subjects, but also for the ophthalmologist and for the, the physician in general. So we know that uh, this uh, contagion could be not only by, via airways, but also via the air, via the pollution in the air. And so we know that uh, this type of virus can be transported by a mechanism that is called piggybacking uh, in a sort of, of uh, bag that the powder can transport the virus. And so the virus could depose on the eye surface. We don't know how this 
the mechanism of the contagion from the eye surface to the airways of the patient of the subject. But we know that if you, if you discover this type of a virus on the surface of the eye, could be an important information for the prevention of the, uh, of the contagion, of the, of the pandemia, of the, the, the diffusion of the pandemia. Is it common for viruses to spread via the eye surface? No, it's not common because we don't know what is the real reason, the real importance of the presence of the virus on the eye surface. Because on the eye surface, we know that we have a lot of antivirus and antimicrobic substances on the tears that could destroy, that could limit the progression of the infection. But we know also that some cells on the eye surface have some receptor that could attach the virus and transport it inside the cells. So the presence of the virus could be only a sign of the conjunctivitis, for example, but also a risk for the contagion of the patient via the airways and so for the most important nature of the pathology via airways, via uh, important debilitation of the patient. And what about how it affects the eyesight and the eye itself? Did you look at that at all? We don't know. We, we know that the virus on the eye surface would not affect the visual acuity or the visual function. The problem is that patients who have a, a systemic contagion, who patient who has a, the real COVID-19 pathology, could have some problems after the contagion, after the disease, with some, you know, vasculitis. Vasculitis is the name of the infection, inflammation of the vessels, of the blood vessels. The eye is very rich in blood vessels, so patients after the COVID-19 disease could have some problems for the chronic inflammation, so the inflammation that persists during time. So the direct relation with the presence of the virus on the eye surface and the eye pathology uh, is not connected directly. The, the virus could cause also some conjunctivitis, but a very shallow, very low conjunctivitis that is a, a pathology only of the surface of the eye, but is not so important in this case. We actually heard early on in the pandemic that people with vasculitis were very at high risk of dying from COVID-19. And we saw early on it was people with diseases like vasculitis who were succumbing to the disease. Vasculitis is an autoimmune disease that could affect all our body. And in particular, some parts that are most important, like the heart, like the lungs, and also like the, uh, the, the, the vessel of the eye, the internal vessel of the eye, of the retina, and of the choroid, that is the vascular uh, layer of the eye. If this pathology affected by an autoimmune mechanism, could this, could this um, pathology could affect the visual function, could affect the, the language, so the respiratory function or the heart function. So it's important in this type of pathology to reduce the autoimmune response of our body. In fact, we use steroids that are uh, immune depressor drugs. What happened that sparked your immediate interest in this research? We When we performed this research in March, April 2020, was the, the best, the, the 
probably the, the, the most important moment, the most important diffusion of the virus on the first wave. So we were really very, very uh, plenty of patients in our intensive care, in our uh, infectious disease department. So uh, probably for other uh, continents, for other uh, countries, it was a, an early stage, but for, our, for us in Italy, in Lombardy region, we were in the very, in the full, in the, in the most critical uh, moment of the pathology for the first wave. So we have uh, not only the patient with the, with the pathology an early stage, but a lot of patients with the most severe stages of the pathology. And so we began to study this type of patient to understand could, what would be the risk for operators, for physicians, for the public, for the subjects in, uh, in the ordinary life to reduce the possibility of a uh, uh, diffusion and of the contagion uh, of the pathology. And what did you find? What were your key highlights? What has really interested other scientists about your research? The, what we found was that uh, we found uh, an high percentage of patients who has the positivity of tears for the presence of the virus, of the RNA of the virus. About uh, 57% of patients we studied had a positivity of the presence of the virus in the tears. In particular, uh, by a sub-analysis of our study, we found that a little percentage of patients presented the virus in the tears, but they were not positive for the standard nasopharyngeal test. And so it was another important information because some patient who was negative for the standard of tests that is performed everywhere in the hospital, in the, in the uh, territory area, territorial, uh, territorial um, healthcare, were positive for the tears. We don't know what is the real meaning of this, but it's important to understand that if the virus, uh, if it's low in, uh, in, in, in viral load, is not high in the respiratory lungs, in the respiratory apparatus, could be present in the, in the body of the patient in some fluids, of the, in some fluids, for example, in the tears. It's important when we speak about, and as I said before, is the, in prevention of the diffusion of the contagion. So a patient could be negative from the standard test, that is the gold standard, the nasopharyngeal test, but with positive, it is, and in this way, it could spread the virus, uh, and so it must be protected. We must be protected also with eye glasses when we are near patients, near subjects that could be infected of the virus. Does this mean that, you know, we're all encouraged to wear masks, but our governments don't tell us to also wear glasses while we're out and about? Should we also be wearing glasses to protect ourselves? We underline in our research that uh, about uh, our opinion, eyeglasses must be worn uh, when we are in at risk uh, um, environment. For, for example, when we are in places with a lot of powder, a lot of pollution. We, we underline that uh, our analysis was performed just uh, three or four weeks after a peak of pollution in the, uh, our area, that is one of, one of the most uh, polluted area, industrial area in Europe. So um, we think that if we, are, if we are in a high polluted area or in an area inside, uh, for example, hospitals, inside the visiting room where patients are affected, it's important for physicians to wear eyeglasses to preserve a possible contagion. 
in the open air is not uh, important in open air when you are up the mountains or uh, or by the sea or in, uh, in uh, not uh, in people places where are not uh, so much uh, pollution or so much people okay why is pollution such a factor do you think uh, i we think we think that uh, the liaison between virus virus and pollution is that the pollution with in particular the pm10 or the PM25, uh, that are the dimension of the powders uh, from pollution, of the powders from uh, flowers, uh, from uh, uh, trees, uh, could uh, transport the, the virus. The virus uh, could tie like a, a mechanism of a powder and the, in, on his bag, the virus uh, that could stay on the air. And so it could be transported also far from the, the subjects, from, from the subject that uh, that uh, um, snooze or that uh, has, has, that uh, is um, affected, and so it would persist in the air a lot of hours before before to go down on the on the on the land, and so uh, it could be an important uh, mechanism of transportation for the for the virus, the, the piggyback mechanism. Have you ever seen a virus like this in your career? No, no. No, not so. Uh, not with the high potential of uh, contagion. Not with the high potential on per or persist on the surfaces like plastic, uh, uh, like glass, or to persist in the air. And so, in a very, very slow quantity of viral load, this virus could be important for the contagion of, of people. And this is the reason that this virus could uh, diffuse diffuse all over in the population. In the first wave, second wave, and probably the third, and we not we don't hope, but of the fourth wave. Okay. <laughs> so, what do you think is going to happen now with COVID nineteen, based on your experience of what you're seeing in the laboratory and with with patients in the Lombardy area? In our area, we assist in a new third or a prolonged now fourth or a prolonged third wave here in Lombardy because we try to reduce people contact we try to we try to persist with the lockdown we are we call the, the as the colors we are in a red zone red zone is the, the like a complete lockdown uh, probably with the presence of the good season with a lot of sun that could reduce the viral load in the air because the uh, ultraviolet rays, we could uh, assist in a reduction of the possibility of contagion. The problem is the chronicity of the pathology for patients and for people who is affected, because a lot of people uh, with uh, probably uh, different diseases like uh, diabetes mellitus, like uh, uh, cardiological, cardiovascular pathology, has a very severe form of the pathology. And so these people uh, stay in the hospital uh, three weeks, four weeks, uh, uh, seven weeks, because they, they are, a, are not able to uh, be free from uh, oxygen supplementation. It's the great problem is that. P young people, uh, people without disease, uh, would have uh, this pathology that could be diffused in the population, but uh, is, will be reduced in time. But the problem is people with a lot of diseases that... Uh, uh, present a severe form of uh, COVID-19 and uh, this, this pathology persists in a chronic way with vasculitis and so that it could be very, very dangerous. What can people do? Could they be taking eye drops or something to reduce their chances of contracting COVID through their eyes or is there nothing you can do apart from wear glasses? The prevention to contract the virus, if the virus could uh, uh, diffuse from the eyes to the body, is one. 
to reduce uh, the contact of the hands with uh, the eyes with the nose we we know that we, we know that from literature that from um, some studies that uh, we touch our eyes without uh, uh, voluntary uh, contact many times in the hour now with our mask we reduce the contact of the our hands with the face but now when i speak with you when i speak with my colleagues i touch my eyes and i touch the eyes i touch the surface i touch the mouse of the computer i touch my my cell phone it could be a contagious way very very important second way we must use um, lacrimal drops uh, like uh, lacrimal substitute to reduce the persistence of the virus or the powders on eye surface we use this type of uh, drops also when we, we work uh, we work at the computer the pc when we work with uh, with uh, in open air but we are, must increase the use of lacrimal drops to reduce the persistence of uh, of powder of uh, pollution on the eye surface and don't not touch your eyes with the, your hands is more very, very important what's next in your research now we would like to in our enroll all patients that uh, has covid 19 to understand what would be the chronic lesion that appears in the uh, retinal in the peripheral retina on the retinal vascularization we have a lot of uh, very important instrumentation like uh, OCT angiography or simple angiography that could study the structure of retinal vasculature. And so we can understand in particular in patients who had different, uh, different stage of uh, COVID-19 uh, vasculitis uh, for lungs, for heart, to study what could be the um, retinal vasculature uh, modification that could be not symptomatic, so the patient could have a good visual acuity, but as for inflammation, we would find some lesion, some alteration that could be, that could be, became chronic, and so could have his uh, manifestation some, uh, some year, in some years. We hear a lot about long COVID. Do you think that we're going to see the effects of long COVID in our eyes? Are you seeing that? Yes, yes. Not only on the eye surface where we found the virus, but inside the eye, in the retinal vascularitis, uh, in the choroidal vasculitis, uh, so in this type of inflammations, not in the uh, surface where we have a, a lot of uh, um, factors in tears that could reduce the presence of the virus or the virus could be rapidly uh, eliminated from the surface inside the eye, inside the, the nose, and so away from the eye. So what does the vasculitis, or what do these things do to the eye? Can it make you go blind? Does it affect your eyesight? What happens? No, no, I think no, because otherwise if the vasculitis is acute, yes, we must treat this. But we also have um, chronic lesion. So the lesion that not uh, symptomatic, the patient could have any signs of the pathology and no danger of uh, to, to lose the visual acuity. Only some signs of uh, inflammation, signs like uh, um, Reduced, reduced perfusion of the eye, reduced blood perfusion, but not uh, the risk of, uh, apart some particular acute uh, clinical feature that could be treated immediately. We must protect our eyes when we visit patients side by side in order to avoid a possible contagion, not only during the visit, but also during the surgery. When we 
make cataract surgery, we create a lot of uh, little uh, water droplets that uh, can diffuse all around. So must be care also in this case. This is a, an attention for all ophthalmologist surgeons and not also for, for ophthalmology that make visits uh, every day. So must be protected, don't touch the eye and always use, uh, probably very important, also the antiseptic that we can use before or after the visits to reduce the presence of the virus on the eye surface. Are there other viruses that spread like this? No, uh, like this, no. We have a lot of virus that could diffuse, uh, that, are in, that interest in particular the eye surface, like the adenovirus that cause the common uh, features of uh, the conjunctivita or conjunctivitis uh, of keratitis, that are the infection of the eye. But uh, uh, they are they spread only by the direct contact from my hands to the hand of the patient but not so important with this, this diffusion on the, on the air and the, with this direct contact for the patient. So we know that one of the, I'm very sorry, but one of the first patients, the first ophthalmologist who died uh, from the COVID-19 was an ophthalmologist. So uh, we must pay attention in the first phase in China in uh, January uh, 2020 was an ophthalmologist. Was, uh, so our interest in this type of uh, in this type of study was also to remember this type of danger. And does the contamination in the eye tell you anything about whether somebody's likely to die from COVID or not? Was there any relationship between how seriously no, ill the person no, was? No, we evaluated um, the viral load of this patient from the tears and the uh, condition uh, in uh, intensive care or intensive care departments, or uh, infectious disease, or the type of oxygen supplementation, for example, the mask, the Venturi mask, the, uh, the cannulation. But there was no uh, relation between the viral load on conjunctiva and the uh, severity of the pathology or the severity of uh, um, respiratory supplementation for the patients at the moment. No. Discovery Vitality members will now be able to earn miles in their sleep, literally. Dr. Saran Motilal, Vitality Clinic Wellness Specialist and Mental Health Expert, joins me, Jackie Cameron of BizNews, to tell us why the rewards program has added mindfulness minutes and sleep goals. The one thing that we started to realize, and, and the reason we did is because more research was coming out in this, was the extent of the mental health challenge, both globally and in South Africa. So what we can see from research, for example, is that uh, we know that at least 16% of the world's population are affected by a mental disorder. So it's incredibly high. And what we know from, from South Africa is that the lifetime prevalence for mental health condition is found to be around 30%. One in three people have a lifetime prevalence. So what we can see is that there's this incredible burden of disease and this incredibly large prevalence. You know, some of the things that have happened more recently, which has shone more light um, on, on mental health and the challenge of mental health, have been things like the pandemic and COVID-19 and the last year that we've all had to endure. All of this has come to a point where we've started to realize, you know, this is a much, it's a very serious issue. There's a lot more that we can do in this space and there's a lot more where we can try to support people in this space. Um, there's also been more research showing, you know, what are the potential 
factors that we can include in the program that can potentially have benefits and can actually help support people on their mental well-being. That includes things like physical activity, nutrition, mindfulness, good quality sleep and, and a good amount of sleep, for example. All of that, you know, there's more research showing the benefits of, of those additions and, and those factors. And that has really helped us enhance our program in an evidence-based way to make sure that we're addressing the issues that exist. That's quite a staggering number, 30% of all South Africans having a mental health challenge at some stage in their lives. Can you elaborate on what these challenges are? Is it depression? Are there different types of mental health issues that you encounter? This is a stat taken from the South African Stress and Health Study. And that study looked at basically all-encompassing. So it includes all sorts of mental health conditions, like you've mentioned, things like mood disorders, which include your depression and other mood disorders, anxiety-related disorders, as well as all kind of conditions that sit under the gambit of, of psychiatry. And it is a lifetime prevalence. And so that's the risk for developing, a, you know, one of these conditions. It's quite incredible and a little concerning as well. It's incredibly concerning. And when you think about something like COVID-19, this is a situation that is beyond our control. How do we fix that kind of a problem? if it's making us unhappy? Oftentimes, there are a lot of factors that sit out of our control and that can have a significant impact on our mental well-being. And these external stresses can exist in a myriad of different ways. It could be COVID-19, it could be financial stress, it could be societal stress or family stress. When we talk about mental well-being, building resilience and, and those types of aspects, what we tend to do is we try to, to say as much as possible, if we can focus on what's in our control, so what are the internal stresses? How are our thoughts, emotions, and behaviors interacting? How can we try and support the factors that exist internally? Because oftentimes those are the ones that we can have some control over and that can help us build better coping mechanisms. With the Vitality Program, what we've always said is, if you are struggling to cope, if you aren't managing, really do seek out extra help, get professional help, speak to people you trust, and day-to-day -day invest in activities that we know from evidence has shown that it is beneficial to your mental well-being. And those are some of the elements, things like mindfulness, things like sleep, things like physical activity, things like nutrition, where possible. We know that it, the long-term investment in these tools really can have beneficial effects on our mental health and our mental well-being. We have now introduced the sleep uh, module as well. So you can link a Garmin or an Apple device and wear it to sleep at night. And if you record four or more sessions of seven hours of sleep per night in a week, then again, you'll be rewarded with Discovery Miles. So the goal here, again, is to encourage trying to get that minimum requirement at least for four nights a week as a start, but ideally, hopefully, for as much as possible because sleep is so important for our health. Some people might be worried that you're collecting too much data on them. You know exactly when they're going to sleep for how long, how many hours they spent doing mindfulness, get quite granular detail on people. What do you say to people who are concerned about their privacy? You can find, you know, our privacy terms and conditions. They're very explicit as to what is contained, where it's stored, and if you want to delete it, how you can basically request for that to be done. Really, this is nothing that we would do without people agreeing or people being aware of what data is going to where and how it's being used. The idea here really is just so that we can encourage the use of the program, encourage the use of the tracking, encourage people to actually be invested in, in doing the sleep, in doing the mindfulness. And the reason we ask for it is so that we can just help support people to actually get these goals, to invest in their health, to sleep more and start mindfulness as well, and then be rewarded for it.
that brings to a close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. From me, Jackie Cameron for Biz News. Until next time. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.